0: This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Thank you, Zach. That's Zach Lutz, our Director of Family and Youth. Zach, thanks for leading us in worship today. My name is Jeff Heiser. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity I um, thank you so much for joining us via this live stream. If you are new to Trinity or if this is the first time you're tuning in, I am not the senior pastor of Trinity Church. Um, our pastor, Ronnie Garcia, um, has been on vacation and is now in um, kind of self-quarantining himself. For the, that's what he's been doing for the past couple of weeks. But rest assured, he will be back soon. And Ronnie... Thank you for taking these precautions, taking this stuff seriously, and we're really looking forward to having you back. So uh, we're, he'll be hopefully back next week, so tune in for that. We are in the middle of a sermon series in which we're studying the seven last sayings of Jesus as he hung on the cross. Listen, everything that we do here at Trinity is about Jesus Christ. We want to know him, to worship him, to learn about him, to love him. And these words on the cross contain so much of the character of Jesus Christ, and we want to get into them. We want to know who he is. And so we're studying, we're meditating on these words. And today, um, the fourth of those sayings is going to come from Matthew chapter 27. So if you'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles or turn there in your sermon guide, um, it will, or your, your liturgy guide, it will be there for you. Um. If you are new to the Christian faith, we're so thankful that you are joining us today. But one of the things that you're going to begin to realize as you get kind of down into the nitty-gritty of our faith is that the Christian faith is full of paradoxes. Paradoxes are things that seem contradictory or even impossible at first glance. And, and we in our world, we don't like to have paradoxes because they feel messy, they feel like contradictory, ah, we just, we don't like them. For example, um, we think about our political parties. It's not like our political parties can't be both good and bad, right? Even if that's actually true, like we we resist that and we say, oh, we're all good and they're all bad, right? Because to have them both be it, a party to be both good and bad would feel messy. It'd feel complicated. It'd feel contradictory. But when we turn to the Bible, what we find out is that God does not play by our rules. He just doesn't. And And what And in fact, some of the truths that are contained in the paradoxes of Scripture are some of the most beautiful truths in all of Scripture. They are um, where the heart of the gospel is found. In our passage today, we have two Christian paradoxes. Now, I want to be careful ranking biblical truths. But if we were to do so, the paradoxes that we find in this passage would be right at the top of the most beautiful, most wonderful most life-changing truths in all of Scripture. I'm going to tell you what they are, then we're going to read our Scripture, and then we're going to dive in and kind of unpack them a little bit. The first paradox is that the perfect Father abandons His beloved Son. We'll get into what that means. But the perfect Father abandons His beloved Son. And the second is that victory comes through death. So let's read our passage, and I'm not going to ask you to stand as I usually do, because we're all at home. So if you would just set apart this portion of Scripture in in your hearts and in your minds. This is God's good word to us. This is his very word, and we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 27, we're going to read verses 45 through 50. Hear now the reading of God's word. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma Sebakhtani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This is God's good word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will abide forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Amen. If you were to plot Jesus' life on a graph, it would look something like a bell curve. God, So you have God the Son right, the per, like one of the persons of the Trinity. He becomes a man and is born in a stable. So you have the king of kings being born in a stable. This would be a low point, right? But then, you know, Jesus lives his early life, and you have the beginning of his ministry, and what you have is him, you come to his baptism, And it's this moment of of power and beauty where the Lord actually descends upon, the Holy Spirit descends upon Christ, and God says audibly, this is my beloved son. That'd be a high point. Right, So you start in the stable, you go to his baptism, and then it just drops off pretty severely after that. And you have just everyone starts rejecting him, right? The the Pharisees, eventually just the, all the crowds, the peoples, and eventually even his disciples are rejecting him. And his life finishes actually way... So if you're plotting the bell curve, the end of the bell curve, the bottom is a whole lot lower than it started. The crucifixion is a whole lot worse than being born in a stable, but if you were to actually take the bell curve and, and actually zoom in just right on that, his crucifixion and really focus in on just that little section of that curve, that line, you would find that it is itself also a bell curve. So you have the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Jesus is crying out to God, Lord, take this cup from me. And, and of course, the Lord says, no, you, like, this, is what you, this is my will that you go down this road. That is a low point, right? Right? And then, of course, Christ is crucified and and flogged in these things and and then but then you see him on the cross, and what is he doing he's He's forgiving people, he's promising paradise, he's resisting temptation, right there's this moment like these moments of hope, and that would be a high point, but then it drops off steeply after that and do you see in your passage there in verse forty five right at the beginning where it's talking about the sixth hour to the ninth hour? that'd be about from about three o'clock to Uh, Sorry, from about noon to about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, and Matthew, what he's doing there is he's giving the time frame of that downward curve. The drop off as as Jesus descends into the abyss. And and, and it, it reaches this climax. In the ninth hour, when Jesus cries from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, you know, Jesus taught his disciples to call God their father. And maybe you've heard pastors or preachers or teachers um, talk about how our own experiences of our fathers actually shape how we understand God as a a father. So, you know, maybe you see God with similarities to your father. Maybe you see him in contrast to your father if you had a difficult relationship. But either way, like we can begin to imagine how a perfectly loving father interacts With his children. And this is where you find the first paradox because you have a perfect father abandoning his beloved son. Like a perfect father would never abandon his son. That's a contradiction in terms, isn't it? And in fact, if you um, were to turn to Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, right? You have this, the, the younger son, What he, he um, tells his dad that he wishes he was dead. He re- to grabs all his money and goes off and he spends it on gambling and prostitutes and such. And, and he, he just blows it all. And he comes to this point where he's living in a, like a pig slop. And he says, you know maybe I better just go back and be my dad's slave because that sounds a whole lot better than the life I'm living. Um, but that, and that's all, the only thing that I can probably expect from my dad after I've insulted him so badly. And so he goes back to his father and what happens? His father runs to him. He He grabs him. He hugs him. He makes this feast for him, right? And of course, Jesus is painting this picture of God as a father, a loving, welcoming father. This is who God is. This is how God is supposed to treat his children. And yet, you have him abandoning Jesus, his only son, his own son. And he did really, truly abandon him. You know, oftentimes we feel that that God is absent as if he has abandoned us. That's what we feel that. But he actually hasn't. And, and the Bible makes it very really clear. like He will never leave us or forsake us. God does not abandon us. But Jesus, he really did abandon. He really did forsake him. And of course, there's no one in history that was less prepared for this moment. If you think about it, Jesus had always been in perfect intimacy and communion with God. This is not something that he experienced ever before. This is like fully unique in his life. He's never felt the absence of God. And yet he cries out in this pit of misery and pain. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there is no answer. Absolutely none. He has been completely abandoned. How could a perfect father abandon his son? How could he put his son through this Kind of pain Because it's not like Jesus messed up or something, right? He was sinless. It's not like God's fickle or something. No, this is a perfect father abandoning his son. Well, what is happening in this moment of abandonment is that Jesus is bearing the full weight of all the punishment of our sins. The Apostle Paul says that Jesus knew no sin... That, is, that means that he was sinless, and yet he became sin. Not that he became sinful, it's that he became the embodiment of sin itself. He, all of the weight of sin and darkness and death, was dumped on his exhausted and bloody and torn shoulders as he hung there on the cross. So why would God do this? Why in the world would God do this to his son? Well, he did it because he loves us. See, he would abandon his son, right? The son that he loves, he would abandon him so that you and I could also be his sons and daughters so that he could adopt us into his family. You see, God's love is so great for us that he is willing to reject even his beloved son to make it possible for us to be part of his family, to be his children. And Jesus knew that this was going to happen. It's not like, you know, this, he walked into this with his eyes closed or something. He willingly accepted that rejection. He knew that it was going, that it had to happen. And he did it so that we could become part of his family. You see, Charles, Charles Spurgeon, one of the probably one of the most famous preachers of all time, just incredibly good with words, way better than I ever could be. But this is how he puts it. He says, you shall measure the height of his love. That's Jesus' love. You shall measure the height of his love if it be ever measured, by the depth of his grief, if that can ever be known. If you ever want to know how much our Lord Jesus Christ, how much he loves you. He loves you. Reflect on these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen, often I think that um, our schedules and our rhythms to life, they actually are really good at masking a lot of our sins. And if you're like me, this time of quarantine has just completely exploded my schedule. And um, when our rhythms get torn down, The darkness of our hearts, which maybe we had been able to like stamp down and you know and cloak a little bit, it really has a way of poking its way out. Um, we realize that um, you know we're just home all the time, so we get we find ourselves getting really angry with our spouses, and we realize, man, I'm like pretty judgmental. I'm like pretty angry. I got issues, or we blow up at our kids, and we think, man, I I'm like really impatient. That's a problem. Or maybe just the panic and fear is crippling to you, and you're realizing maybe you know I don't actually really trust God that much, do I? And I guess I want to say to you, if you're experiencing the, I certain, um, yeah, if you're if you're experiencing these sorts of feelings, if you're reflecting on yourself during this time, I guess I want to say to you that Jesus died for those sins too. You see, Jesus, as he's hanging on the cross, he is under no illusions about how bad sin is. He knows. He knows the pain. He knows what it means to bear all those sins, he knows the darkness that is in our hearts. And if you're just realizing right now that that you're a whole lot worse than you thought you were, like you need to know that Jesus died for those sins too. I loved in Zach's email to our parents this week, he said, if you are blowing up at your kids, cling to Jesus. Turn to him. Like those are the sins that he was abandoned for. And we can find all the love and acceptance and grace that we will ever need in that cry. We can find them in that cry of anguish and abandonment and pain. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You shall know the measure, you shall measure the height of his love if it ever be measured by the depth of his grief, if that can ever be known. The first paradox is that the perfect father would abandon his beloved son. The second is that as the bell curve bottoms out, as Jesus' life reaches its lowest point, as he even dies, this is the first passage that we've talked about, that, we, that it's really as dealt with Jesus actually dying. That's what, how it ends. That even as Jesus dies, there is hope. Here's the paradox. That their victory is through death. Victory is through death. If I were to say to you the words, Luke, I am your father, like you would know exactly what that means and where that's from. Like everyone knows, right? It's like those words are a cultural icon. Now, the Jews in Jesus's day, they would have known biblical references in the same way that we today know cultural references. Does that make sense? So they would have known immediately, even though maybe you and I don't, but we would have, they would have known immediately That Jesus' words on the cross, he's actually quoting an Old Testament passage. And that Old Testament passage is Psalm 22. And it's a good rule of thumb when you're reading your New Testament that whenever it quotes the Old Testament, which is really often, when it quotes the Old Testament, turn back to your Old Testament. Find the reference in your margins and turn back and figure out what is it that the the New Testament authors are thinking about as they write. And we can get a fuller sense of what they're thinking about if we turn back. So if we were to turn back to Psalm 22, it would start with these very words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right, David, the, the King David wrote this psalm. And he's writing it from this moment of intense despair and pain. But here's the thing about Psalm 22, is that it begins in despair and pain, but it does not end in despair and pain. Actually, the end of the psalm, which we read today in our Old Testament reading, is a song of victory. Listen again to what David says. You can even look there in your, in your liturgy. It says, "At all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Um, kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. So what's going on here as Jesus quotes this psalm, as he cries out in anguish, right? And even in his words, which like, this isn't just like some, he's not just conveniently quoting Psalm 22, like he's truly experiencing this abandonment. But what we're learning is that even in that abandonment, there is a glimmer of hope. What we're learning is that Jesus, even um, through his abandonment and death, even as he's going through those things, he knows that it is those things themselves that is through those things that he will have the final victory over all despair, all coronaviruses, all sin, and even death itself. You see, the Christian faith is a story of victory through death. Victory in the midst of, Of darkness. How is this possible? Well, Jesus didn't stay dead. Jesus didn't stay dead. We believe in the resurrection. He didn't stay in the grave. He rose again on the third day. He bore the sins of the world, right? He experienced the abandonment of God. He went down into death itself, and yet he emerged alive and victorious. We serve a God who can make dead things alive. He's a God who can redeem even incredible darkness. But I want to bring this home to us because I, like this is actually so much of the Christian life is God redeeming even incredible darkness. And I want to do that by telling you um, a short story. Do you, guys, can you guys, um, do you guys know that picture from the Vietnam War? This is like one of the most famous images of all time. The picture um, from the Vietnam War of those little kids running away from their village that has just been napalmed. Do you guys know this image? Can you picture it in your mind? It's one of the most, like you, you can see in the, not, in the eyes of this, um, this little nine-year-old girl, right? Her clothes have been bur- literally burned off. And she's running away in intense pain and terror, From the napalm bombing, like all the horror of the Vietnam War, which was just horrible, horrible. All of it is captured in that little girl's face. Um, What you may not know about that little girl is that she actually survived the war. And years later, she became a Christian, if you can believe it. And she actually wrote a book about her experiences, her experiences of war, her experiences of um, just the healing from, like, napalm burns all over her back, her back and her legs. Um, Just, I mean, incredible darkness, incredible pain. Um, But what she experienced is that God was even redeeming that pain. This is what she says. She says, there was a story beneath the story there. A divine underpinning that for many decades even I could not detect. A set of spiritual stepping stones that unbeknownst to me were paving a path to get me to God. I mean, like we can look at that picture and we can get a glimpse into the horror of the war. But she like legitimately experienced that horror herself. And she can look at that picture and she can say about herself, God, even in that, even in that, God can do great and wonderful things. God can be victorious. God can work even in incredible darkness. Right? This is like so central to our identity as Christians. Like it is the very message of the gospel that God is a God who can bring dead things to life. And listen, we certainly feel an incredible darkness at this time. But we serve a God who can do great and wonderful things. Even in the midst of quarantines and coronavirus and economies collapsing, all these things that we're experiencing, our God can do great and wonderful things. And I'm going to close really quick here um, just with one point of application, one way that we can respond. Um, A pastor that I listened to by the name of Brian Habig, he was reflecting just on this whole situation we have right now. And this is what he said. He said, you and I have an obligation to remember what happens during this time and to tell future generations like, this is not something we think about a lot, but, you know, part of Christian, the peop- like, the people of God has, have always told their children of the great and mighty acts of God. And you know what's really interesting? Psalm 22 actually closes with these words. It's really fascinating, really um, poignant. He says in in verse 30, he says, Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. Or he says, They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. What he's saying is, Tell the future generations of Christians of what God is doing. We actually have a responsibility to do that. Right? This is an incredibly dark time. This is, and, and the truth is, is it could get much darker. like we could lose loved ones, we could lose our job. We could ourselves get sick. Those things are real possibilities. But listen, God works. He does great and wonderful things, even in the midst of incredible darkness. And you and I, as we see Him work, as we see him work during the coming weeks and months, you and I have an obligation to remember what he does and to tell future generations because they also will go through dark times and they need to know that God is trustworthy, that God can make dead things alive, that he can have victory even in darkness. Our God has died for us. He has, been, he has experienced abandonment because he loves us so much. Let us, let's take time and tell others of his love and of his work. Amen.